Welcome everybody to the 26th episode of Quarantined Market Podcast, where some academics get together in the current historical moment and talk about particular keywords. So the keyword for today is iconoclasm or statues. And as guests today, we have uh, Andy Murray. And Alan, would you like to introduce Andy? Certainly I would. Andy Murray is a many-time champion at tennis, at Wimbledon and other tournaments. He's also an associate lecturer in art history at the Open University um, and has studied and taught iconoclasm in a range of contexts. He's currently writing about sword ritual in Burgundian and Habsburg funerary ceremonies. So hello, Andy. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Alan. And I'm um, very amused by this joke that I, this, I've never been referred to the tennis player before. This is the first time and um, there's a big smiling grin all over my face. You mean you're not the tennis player? No, I'm not. You. <laughs> well then, why did? Uh, no. Well, that that somewhat undermines the excitement of the podcast. But I suppose we might as well soldier on. It'd be more disappointing for those at Wimbledon if I turn up. <laughs> All right. So um, yeah, no. So Black Black Lives Matter demonstrations have um, been despoiling and pulling down statues, and um, I think we can focus here on the. Um, American and the British context, um, but um, it's also, this has also been occurring across Europe. Um, so targets have been images of George Washington, Christopher Columbus, and um, Confederate generals in the United States. So in Belgium, statues of King Leopold II have been attacked in Antwerp, Brussels, and Ghent, and statues of Winston Churchill have been vandalized in Budapest, Prague, and London. So in, in Britain, what's really occupied the news has been the statue of um, the 17th century slave trader Edward Colston, which came down in Bristol on the 7th of June 2020. And after it was pulled down, uh, protesters dragged it to the harbour and threw it into the water. It was recovered by the council a few days later, but this act of pulling it down has been successful in that the council planned to keep it in a museum rather than reinstall it. So um, these attacks on monuments to slavers and um, Confederates have happened within the context of police violence. U.S. policing has deep historical roots um, in the slavery and subjugation of black people. The earliest form of policing were slave patrols. From the early 1700s, gangs of white men would enforce slavery laws, capture runaways, and suppress uprisings. These were dissolved after the these slave patrols were dissolved after the Civil War. But the police departments that were established across America were similarly composed of white men and were also poorly trained and they enforced the persecution of black communities. Although slavery was abolished, they could enforce what were known as the Jim Crow laws, laws enforcing the segregation of black people until their repeal in the 1960s. Although black people um, now have the same rights supposedly as white people, Michelle Alexander has shown in her recent book, The New Jim Crow, that black people continue to suffer disenfranchisement, aggressive policing and criminalization through debt and minor, often drug-related offenses. As recently as 2017, the Human Rights Watch and Harvard Criminal Justice Policy Program reported to the UN that these factors combined to create a cycle of poverty and violence among the United States' poorest neighborhoods. The emergence of contemporary policing has therefore, it's come from the history of slavery and persecution against black people. So before targeting statues, protesters set fire to a police station in Minneapolis, as well as a former slave market in uh, Fayetteville, North Carolina, and more broadly, they call for the defunding of the police. Do you want me to also give the background to what's been happening in Britain in a bit more detail, Alan, or do you want to pick up the discussion from here? I think a good place to start all of this discussion would be iconoclasm itself, which isn't the term that we've tend to heard quite a bit uh, in relation to the statues been pulled down. So why do you think that is a useful term? I don't think it is a useful term. So I... Um... Iconoclasm is the destruction of is, is it's the destruction of images. Is iconoclasm? I don't I don't find it's a um, a good term because um, with at least the history of um, Western intellectual culture, it's associated with um, attacking religious images, graven images. So um, within the eighth and ninth century in Byzantium, there were iconoclastic um, waves against um, uh, images of um, uh, religious images of Christ and other things, because images were seen to be to humanize or to materialize the divine. 
Um, and this is also what you find in uh, a Protestant iconoclasm in the 16th century. You've got an attack on images for the, crudely put for the sake of being images. And I don't think this is a fair thing to describe what's going on with the destruction of monuments with Black Lives Matter. Because, um, it, you know, you'll then begin comparing, say, Black Lives Matter to um, Daesh um, uh, or ISIL, who in the contemporary moment um, also destroy images um, in Iraq. In other words, you get terrorists, religious terrorists today who destroy images, where what you actually find in the case of Black Lives Matter is the, om uh, the opposite, in my view, that they're pulling down images which were put up there to terrorize local communities. So no, my view is iconoclasm is probably not the destruction of Confederate statues or destruction of slaver statues, something more specific, I think is more useful, thinking about the actual motivations of these people within their local historical context and the history that they're engaging with is a, um, uh, a fairer way to try and think about what these people are doing than to try and think about iconoclasm in broader, more transhistorical terms, which I think lead to false comparisons. Yeah, that's uh, kind of what I was thinking about exactly. The real problem that I'm struggling with today and in terms of how to understand this new movement, if you will, to destroy particular statues, uh, it comes down to the question, what does a statue, if you will, represent or express today? What is this kind of statue with a troubled or, let's say, very problematic and uh, unjust history? What is its role these days? And of course, it's not a religious symbol. It is the, what, what is the function of a statue today? What is its connection to memory or remembrance? I think what we've got to think of here is not just simply the statue in memory and history, but we have to think of um, public space. Um, so one of the arguments against pulling down statues, which you constantly find in liberal media, is that somehow this is erasing history or it's um, um, suppressing free speech. So you had this from um, Boris Johnson. Um, I can't remember the exact quote, but within a recent interview in uh, the Evening Standard, he said that to remove statues is to lie about our history. And I think he was responding to Oriel College's, um, the College in Oxford's decision to remove the statue of Cecil Rhodes. And, and this treats the idea of the statue as having some sort of historical, I suppose, content, and, and we're just ignoring it, and people who want to remove it are just wanting to ignore history. Well, I, I, I really don't think that's what's happening here. I think the issue is not necessarily the statue, but it's the fact that it's in a, um, uh, a public space. And um, the issue about freedom of speech is that, well, for speech to be free, you should be, um, as well as freely being able to speak, you also should be freely ignored. So uh, um, if, if I go onto Twitter or Facebook and write my opinions, um, of course I can exercise my freedom of speech and people can ignore me. And people can also studiously ignore me when, when speaking on this platform here. There's something very different when you put something within the public space, which in some way represents the, the space, well, it actually represents the space of the community, the space which people walk past every day and commute to work, um, eat their sandwiches while they look across Bristol, whatever. The point is that space is not private. It's not something which is, can be ignored by people. It's part of what the community is. So it doesn't really fulfill, I think, this criterion of free speech, um, the, the freedom for um, not only for you to speak, but for people to ignore you. And therefore, the issue is not so much what the statue means but whether it, that community wants that within that space and the the people of bristol for instance who took down this statue a load of people said well we don't want this in this space so the question is more of do those people represent the will of that community um, rather than what does this statue mean in more abstract terms if we think about its iconography or we think about its meaning or or those sorts of things those sorts of questions can be asked when you put the statue in a museum which is i think what the people of Bristol will eventually do with this object rather than put it back up um, within the um, city square. One definition of statues is that they're an attempt to politicize everyday life. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I mean, no one puts up, I, um, no one puts up a statue which, say, has a universal meaning, something which is so, so milquetoast in general that, I don't know, people should be moral, people should be happy. You might get something like that, I don't know, in a, in a play park, you might get a, an image of, uh, I don't know, some a couple of bears hugging or something, is, is, it might exist in a play park. But within a public square, you often have something which makes a statement about the community. And um, what, one of the things where we already see people feel anxious about this, that people have got some sort of awareness, or we as a community have awareness that statues make a statement, is that 
we already, even before these statues started coming down, if you look at the way contemporary statues were treated in British society, we seem to be quite uncomfortable with them already. So a good example is the, the fourth plinth in, um, in London. Um, we get some wonderful political statements made on the fourth plinth. I think I, I mentioned Daesh earlier. The current example is a statue by Michael Rakovitz, uh, um, who's recreated a statue, uh, an ancient Sumerian, I think, statue. Well, certainly from Assyria or Mesopotamia, that part of the world. My knowledge of that ancient history is pretty shaky. But an, but an, uh, but an ancient Lamassu from, um, from 700, which was destroyed by Daesh, he's recreated it, and he's put it onto this statue as a, as a statement of, I suppose, strength against um, people who want to destroy world heritage. But these sorts of political statements, which often are made on the fourth plinth, and it's not just uh, that I can name others. Um, I think Yinka Shonibari did a good one in 2009, actually. He put a, a slave ship within a bottle. Not a slave ship, sorry. Um, HMS Victory, the, um, uh, the, the ship which Nelson rode upon in the Battle of Waterloo. And the, in, the sails, instead of having white sails, it had this um, type of fabric which is associated with um, African culture. So again, he's putting... Um, British military victory in naval history, um, and inscribing that within the history of a say, colonialism. Anyway, my, my point is that these statements about, political statements about culture that can be made, can be made in that sort of forum because it's non-permanent. And unfortunately, with, I think with um, Yink Shonibari's statue, it was eventually bought, I think, by the uh, National Maritime Museum, and it, you can now see it permanently there. But most of these statues don't really find a permanent home, these political statements which are put in on the fourth plinth. So the things which actually do find permanent space are much more milk, toast, and vague. So you should see anything which Anthony Gormley prints. Anything by Anthony Gormley is very, very vague. It's just, a, um, I suppose, an image of a, of a man. If you think of particular, say, the Angel of the North, it's the most inoffensive thing that you, you will ever see. I suppose it's a statement about industry and the pride of the North in industry, but it's, it's not really anything. that It's such a generic figure. And Anthony Gormley, I think, attracts a lot of funding for these permanent statues because they simply offend or upset nobody, which is why they can be put up there permanently. So I think even if we, even before we get to the issue of slavery, there is a broader context within um, not just post-war, but I suppose much more uh, recent contemporary culture in Britain with statues where we're unsure about uh, making political statements which are permanent. And that is certainly what an image of a, uh, a slaver does. I suppose one of the interesting things is how all of this is about held to account for the past, how to understand it. I'm reminded of one of the Bolsheviks jokes um, that the future was guaranteed, but the past is uncertain. Um, and, and statues do throw up this question, don't they? Because it's not just the values of the 18th century, for example, but in terms of the legacy of those uh, those historical moments for contemporary Britain and contemporary USA and elsewhere. An interesting thing is that, uh, and again, I'm, I'm thinking very much from an Irish perspective here, that this, of course, is the centenary uh, of the War of uh, Independence, or at least it's about to happen. Uh, we, we recently had the centenary of uh, the 1916 uprising, and there's been a huge amount of revisionist history which has come to recognise that Irish nationalism is a mythology, is a narrative, uh, it has its own contingencies, it encounters a kind of parallel set of mythologies in Ulster Unionism. And so uh, Fitton O'Toole, for example, the Irish um, intellectual writer, says that everybody in Ireland now understands or is capable of understanding history in a postmodern way. Whereas in Britain, none of that work seems to be happening at all. That the relationship to the British Empire seems to be completely complacent. And so you have this kind of unbearable tension between a sort of, you know, the, 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 the patriotism of people like Boris Johnson and Michael Gove, who have, seem to have no problem whatsoever with the British imperial past, not to mention the continued existence of the British royal family and so on. So history in Britain really does seem to be the thing that's, that's most uncertain of all. Yes, I, 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 there's some really interesting examples, actually. You started off, though, with um, some Russian jokes so about, the, about the past and the future, and you, you really see, I suppose, a very different attitude towards statues in post-Soviet states. Um, you find, I suppose, this, due to the incredulity, I suppose, which um, many people within ex-Soviet states have towards 
the idea of their history, I suppose, their brave, um, uh, the, the, the history of communism and socialism, of course, is it's the, the history of communism is not fulfilling the narrative which, which was being claimed. The thing which is going on with Brexit and Britain constantly is that we still believe, as you say, that we exist in this, in an empire, and the empire was positive, and it lives to the present as a positive thing. We don't really have an impression that the empire, the empire was not just wrong or it was bad, but also that it's an image which was, or a story which is completely false that we should be suspicious of, as you say, with regard to Ireland. So what you find, there's some really interesting cases with post-Soviet statues which make this case. So recently, um, a statue in Odessa, in the city of Odessa, it's been transformed into Darth, it's a statue of Lenin, which has been transformed into Darth Vader, which is quite wonderful. It's because it's, not only is that quite a postmodern gesture, you know, you're taking something which is making a Lenin a, an incredible figure in Soviet history who is to be respected, and then you're turning into something which is pop culture. But you're also pulling, I suppose, Odessa into Western culture, as opposed to Russian culture. I suppose this, uh, a, a popular culture of where everything can be held non-seriously, everything can be taken ironically in a joke. You get the same in other cities. So in, in Budapest, there is a, um, in the center of Budapest, there's a, a wonderful statue of the TV detective Columbo, uh, and I, I don't know why this is. No one's really explained this to me, but I find it quite interesting. In in the middle of Vilnius, there's a, um, a statue of Frank Zappa. So we have in these uh, these two other examples, there's that you have cities which distance themselves not simply from communism, but but simply from crudely put to take the postmodern view from meta narratives generally, and seem to have this ironic detachment which Western um, popular culture allows for that context there's something almost quite naive that statues still exist isn't there i mean apart from the outrage of what it is they're celebrating just the idea of trying to to leave a permanent narrative uh, just just doesn't chime at all with with the way that we 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 now think of history as a series of narratives yes which which statue did you mean which one which one was left being left there i mean any statue for example from the 18th century for example uh, if, if we think of it as an attempt to make a permanent representation of something that was once understood to be glorious, there, there's, it, it, there's something just very naive about that impulse, it seems to me. Yes, and that is certainly a naivety, I think, which exists in Britain. I think there's a, a very different context in the United States. With the United States statues, um, there, there was a, a recent survey done by the... So what you can say with the, with the British statues, if you, if you were to interpret them charitably, you, you could say that they were, they were put up in the 19th or early 20th century um, as uh, a monument to slavers who gave a lot to the area and then not thought of much since then. And, and then they come to offend, I suppose, contemporary political mores. What you have in the United States is very different. The, um, there was a, a really interesting survey done by the... Um, Southern Poverty Law Center, and they looked at Confederate monuments put up all around the United, uh, United, United States, and they found that the, the biggest periods for producing um, Confederate monuments was in the second two decades of the 20th, 20th century, so that's the period when the second KKK movement developed and spread. And the, the second spike was from around 1955 to 1968, so the period of the Civil Rights Movement. So what we have in, in the United States with these monuments is that they were installed um, to intimidate black communities and assert white, su white supremacy at a point when such supremacy was being at points when such supremacy was being challenged. So um, what we have there is not simply a naivety that I suppose that the past statues and their, their heroic appearance transparently represent the reality of history. What we have in the United States is something very different. These monuments were put there. Um, to terrorise people and very much engaged with the politics of the present. Although I wonder if they are so different. So, for example, back to Ireland, the reason why the British would have put so many statues of British generals in Ireland for the first place, I'm sure, was to remind the locals that Ireland now was British uh, and that these are the, the leading figures. So it seems that that sort of colonial will to domination is always going to, to, to figure in, in the existence of statues. Yes, they, they, they anglicise the place names and then they, they, they introduce statues to their generals everywhere. But then we can distinguish Ireland from, from Britain. Um, it might be, I don't know, I'd have to look into the history of this much more clearly, but it might have been, there might not have been the tension between 
the, the crudely put the upper class and the local community um, within the context of um, Bristol, for instance, or within um, uh, the context of, I can't remember the chap, I think it was Robert Milligan, another statue has been taken down um, in London. We've seen that in, uh, in other places within Britain, it's local communities to come out to defend the statues. So in Poole, there's the statue of the chap who founded uh, the Scouts movement, and the council wanted to remove that for safekeeping, but actually the locals came out to defend it. So there you don't see the, the same tension between the, um, I don't know, leftist groups on the one hand who want to remove the statue, I suppose that does exist in this case, but, but between the people who installed the statue on the one hand and the community on the other. We find in Ashbourne in Derbyshire that the local council in Ashbourne also removed a statue of a, um, well, I, the only way to describe it is it's a, it's a monstrous image of a black person which they keep above their high street and that's been removed for its safekeeping. I'm going to try to summarise my point. The colonial context which exists in Ireland obviously doesn't exist in Britain with British communities, even if there's relationships of domination between the British ruling class and the um, local communities and the working class, historically. I'm still thinking now about the postmodern, and I hope you didn't fully ans answer this whole thing by saying, by kind of uh, showing how uh, the naivety of thinking how this is uh, not about, of course, erasing memory when uh, statues are now uh, removed from public spaces. But there is something to me, something meta-narrative about how statues become this immediate target of collective action because they still go on to signify the narrative of memory in maybe this more postmodern age. And of course, there is this libidinal frill and the spectacle of, you know, destroying the statue too, which we see all, all the, every time this kind of a statue becomes removed. There, there is the public and the, maybe the public space also ties in with the possibility of this carnivalesque. I guess what I'm trying to get at is that there is still something memory related that is maybe not erased but it's signified as some sort of importance maybe in an age where memory is sort of becoming in this late capitalist fashion increasingly occluded well um there's there's, there's a lot going on there i mean there's capitalism on the one hand there's colonialism on the other and um i i don't know if this is completely relevant but i think these issues can the destruction of statues it's it is about in some way colonial colonial, colonial domination Rather than, and something which came up was I had a conversation with, um, as, as research for this podcast, I had a conversation with two ardent Irish nationalists in my, my family, my dad and my uncle. And my dad actually had an interesting perspective, which, which shows that, I suppose, the distinction between a neoliberal Britain, but also the signification of Britain as it exists in Ireland. So I asked him, are you offended by statues of Cromwell and Nelson? And he said, absolutely not, I don't mind. You can have as many statues of Cromwell and Nelson as you want in in Britain, completely acknowledging, of course, that the more of these you produce, the more meaningless they are. You can, um, he's, he's probably a Catholic, so he's quite used, to, I think, to the Catholic visual culture of, um, crudely put, what Protestants might think of graven images, when you've got lots of images of the Virgin Mary, you can screw off their heads and put holy water from lords in them. So no, he says, absolutely go nuts, have as many images of Cromwell as you want, just don't bring them into Ireland, um, which is his view. So in that case, in, in that sort of distinction, that the, the uh, the image would only be offensive if it was suddenly installed in Irish space, is that suddenly it then becomes um, not just uh, an image of, I suppose, British power, whether it's um, something which is postmodern or not, something we take seriously or not. It's something which becomes um, colonial. And one thing that you find with, um, I suppose, black British citizens and, of course, black American citizens is that, unfortunately, they do not have their own island. It's a great shame everyone should have their own island, I think. But they do not have this. They have to make a space for themselves or uh, a, a political public sphere which they feel comfortable in the countries in which they are a, are a citizen. So they cannot have this double perspective of, well, this is completely inoffensive as, as it exists over here so long as it's out of my backyard because, you know, it isn't their backyard. So that distinction between, crudely put, capitalism and colonialism, what they experience as the, might be a, a capitalist forms of oppression in the present are, yeah, completely, I suppose, coextensive with the, the, the memory of history and slavery, although I, I can't speak for black people here. I, I think that's very, very evident in the fact that Confederate statues are being attacked um, in the present. And the other thing you mentioned, by the way, about this was about um, aesthetics. And, uh, you know, the, I suppose the, 
I suppose you use the, the, the libidinal energy of, of taking statues down. So, yeah, I don't know, people listening to this might disagree with everything I say. They might think that pulling down statues is unlawful or it's immoral or it's erasing history. But one thing that you might be able to admit is that thinking of Western aesthetics is that how we can think about the beautiful as completely separate from the morality is that, okay, you might disagree with doing this, but surely the act of taking it down can be beautiful. And there's something quite prescient, for instance, about taking Colston, it's been noted by a few people, and throwing him, say, into in the performance of throwing him into water. I mean, you see that represented a lot in the, the history of art and slavery. So the famous one is um, J.M.W. Turner's painting The Slave Ship of 1840, which um, shows you know, black hands emerging from the ocean and, and about to be eaten by, by sharks. And this is in Tate Britain. And recently, Carol Walker installed um, within Tate Modern this wonderful statue, the Fons Americanus, which again represents, I suppose it symbolizes the Atlantic being traversed by black bodies and it's this, this fountain has got sharks swimming within it. So some of these acts of seeming just, just what you describe as uh, libidinal violence on the one hand actually have a, a bare level of sophisticated, I suppose, aesthetic gestures within them. So some of these, of course, can be very, very crude indeed. You have in Virginia a statue of Christopher Columbus was set on fire and thrown into a lake. And, you know, this is only about as crude and as violent as slaves were actually um, treated by by slavers. But some some acts are actually a little bit more sophisticated than this. So there's a, there's this wonderful piece, uh, an artist named Dustin Klein, he projected George Floyd's face onto the statue of um, Robert E. Lee, um, a Confederate general, and he projected this face onto this statue on the 18th of June. And in combination with the graffiti, it produced a very striking visual statement, um, one that President, in, President Justices descended from the Confederate States are perpetuated by the society which memorialises them. And so, I, again, I think that's a sophisticated way of showing that the perception of what, what, what you refer to iconoclasm, this is not destroying an image, it's producing another image, and it's producing an image which shows that present injustices, what we see as neoliberalism and capitalism, the prison industrial complex, for instance, are completely coextensive with and laid over the top of this colonial history and this Confederate history. I suppose we could say not only is there an aesthetic to that imagery of people pulling down statues, but it's also immediately iconic as well, isn't it? I mean, the uh, when the statue of Saddam Hussein was pulled down in Baghdad, that was seized upon by the world media as a sort of signal moment that Iraq had turned, that, that there was a new type of legitimacy for the American and British occupation. You don't know what we have here. Why, as I said, the reason why this is quite a wonderful image as well is that I've seen it in photos, and these photos have, of course, spread all over the media, and they communicate this message quite clearly that President injustices are overlaid with a history of injustice, and it does it very quickly and efficiently. Yes, no, completely. The fact that it produces um, an image which spreads on the media is another way of, I suppose, using that statue to produce your own message. And when that graffiti is all being cleared... No matter what happens to that statue, whether it's put in a museum or not, that's going to be part of its reception history. That image of George Floyd is going to be forever contraposed next to the statue looking clean in, um, in future history books. Um, so they've, that reception of the statue is now um, not just put onto the media, but also put within a historical, I suppose, discourse as well. It's just an interesting example. Um, I'm sorry to bring it back to Ireland again, but close to where I... Uh, grew up in, in Fairview Park, there's a statue of a man called Sean Russell, who was uh, an IRA uh, figure. But interestingly, the statue has been very controversial for two completely different reasons. Um, firstly, he was controversial because he went to the Soviet Union to try and secure um, resources for the IRA at the struggle against the British. Um, and so... Uh, I think it was during the 1980s, a group of people came and, and, and wanted to pull down because it glorified communism. And more recently, the statue has become very controversial because he also went to the Third Reich to try and uh, curry some sort of reserve resources from the Nazis. Um, and now it's the leftist time who are objecting to the statue. But it's an interesting example of how the statue itself remains permanent but gets objected to from these polar opposite points at different times of history. Yes, no, it's, um, there's a very similar example. There's a, um, 
an artist called Hans Harker. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, but he, he you might know him because he produced this, well, I was discussing the fourth plinth earlier, and he produced this wonderful image of a, a skeletal horse um, on the fourth plinth in London. Well, he's also famous for producing, um, in 1988, in the um, Austrian city of Graz, he, um, well, in 1938 in the city, uh, the, the Nazis put up a memorial, not a memorial, sorry, but a monument, um, praising the, uh, I suppose, the Nazism of the, the town of Graz and their, their, um, their loyalty to the Nazi party. And in 1988, 50 years later, um, Hans Harker, this artist, uh, revived this memory. He, he, re he reconstructed the monument um, very, very accurately, with the exception that he also put a little plaque underneath commemorating people who were killed by the Nazi regime. It was this, this, this monument that he put up, it was actually um, attacked by neo-Nazis. So we have an instance here where it was neo-Nazis who were attacking uh, a Nazi monument, or what was originally a Nazi monument. But of course the monument came to signify something else. It came to signify the discomfort which people in Austria um, had, of course, of their history. And he was raising memories, of course, which people would rather forget. They would rather have, a, I suppose, a different memory of of their role within the war. So, no, these things do change meaning. Um, they do transform meaning. And um, I think one of the things to think about with regards to the attack on statues um, in Britain and America is that it's not simply an attempt to erase history, to, to repress what happened in the same way that, say, these Nazis had tried to attack this statue in Graz. Uh, the way I interpret this, this desire, for instance, to take, for instance, Cecil Rhodes of Oriel College is, is, is not to say that this is a history that we don't want to um, remember and study. If you put these things in a museum, it's, it's precisely a point where you, you can study these things quite closely. It's, it's rather a question of who do we want to commemorate in the public space? Um, what do we feel um, comfortable with? As, as some, do we feel comfortable with this person being commemorated as something like a, um, crudely put, a hero within the community? And um, I think that's the reason why these statues have been being taken down, rather than to do with the awful memories that they, they come up with. Also, just to introduce a bit of gender um, into the issue, um, I mean, first and foremost, of course, almost all these statues are of men. But also, we might note that statues tend to be quite phallic, uh, like uh, objects in their own way. Is there some sort of... Is it interesting to think of statues as phalluses? I think that is a little bit crude. Um, so, I, I, it's, I think... it's answer is yes, potentially, but I don't think we can make a general law with regard to this but what I, what I would say is that there's a um there's a, there's a wonderful statue by a korean artist i can't remember his name uh, it's a while since i had to look at it but um it's it's um it's in brooklyn and it's a um it's a statue which is a plinth but there's no actual person standing on the plinth what instead the statues are actually underneath the plinth there's a series of um smaller statues about a foot tall and i think that it's in a cast metal of some some form and all these little figures are representing holding the plinth up. And they represent not just a, a white man, but they represent people of all sorts of different origins and, and genders. So we have, at least within this statue in Brooklyn, by this contemporary Korean artist, and I apologize for forgetting his name. It's, it's only the, your question or supposition which has made me remember this. But we have someone who said, well, actually, if we think about statues not as the person from above, but we think about history from, you know, literally from, from below. Uh, we have something which is the, the, the representation of gender, race, and identity is much more fluid because, of course, the people who produce the history um, for, I suppose, individuals, for instance, become, to become Nelson is much more diverse than Nelson himself. So the people who not only produced Nelson's column and installed Nelson there, not only were those people more diverse than Nelson, but also so was that society. So were um, the people of London, their families... So their associates, the whole network again of um, uh, British rule within that period and its colonies is much more diverse. So the answer is yes, but I think when you begin to, yeah, yeah, that statues are phallic, but I think that a more interesting elaboration on that is when you begin to look at, begin to ask that question of particular monuments and find particular monuments which probably speak to that logic.
I'm really trying to think about consumer culture and how one idea that you were talking about is sticking with me. And that was the idea that you referred to these uh, statues that, have, that were uh, defaced by using superhero characters like Darth Vader or uh, I've seen other images of Marvel characters or some such being used to sort of replace the image of the statue. So in this weird way, I'm thinking about how the commodity that is this fictitious superhero character, or at least the fictitious character, is at the same time used first to deface and then to sort of reface, reface what was the statue. So it makes the statue into a representation of a commodity. And because these commodities have no place in history other than their pop culture reference, it sort of takes it out of time. And that kind of somehow brings me back to the postmodern idea, this James or Frederick Jameson kind of idea. Like, what would inspire you to kind of uh, change the face of a statue and replace it with a superhero image? Is it only because of its public notoriety and popularity? Because it's so, uh, don't we have any other inspiring images to go for in the current consumer culture? Well... Yeah, very crudely, when you've got a statue and you put it on a pedestal, that's quite literally high culture, you're making it high. So one way to, an act of profanation, you know, if we think of profanation as taking what is high and making it low, is to make Lenin into Darth Vader, you know, a, 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 a popular figure of a dictator. But I, again, what I think is, rather than come up with a general rule here, I mean, it's, it's very, very typical logic within art history that the art object what art is is it's it's in contrast to the commodity on the one hand or the the artifact on the other i think more more interesting questions can be made if we find um, artists and sculptors who uh, i suppose that they, they in some way they play or they work with kitsch or in commodities in interesting ways and uh, an interesting example i mentioned earlier was um uh the current statue on the fourth plinth by uh, michael rakovitz and um uh his statue of uh, this Lama Sioux, which was destroyed by Daesh, because this recreation that he produced was from uh, tin cans. So, you know, it's, it's Andy Warhol-esque tin cans, but tin cans which would were from Iraq, which would hold Iraqi foodstuffs. So, in some way, there's an acknowledgement here that in the fact that he's produced something out of a, a, an irreplaceable work of world heritage, and he's, he's produced it out of such a lowly medium, is some form of acknowledgement in a way that that he cannot produce what the original was, and he's drawing a, a uh, your attention to the contrast, and I suppose to what's lost. But he's also inscribing that global heritage, I suppose, within the contemporary moment, and also within Iraqi um, national um, culture. So he's also in some way claiming uh, what is irretrievable to the Iraqi culture, which has lost it. And there's a really interesting inscription. Um, I don't know if I mentioned it um, earlier, but it's in cuneiform, which is on that statue, and it again plays with this, this difference between high and low. Uh, the cuneiform inscription, which was on the original, is on the, the new object, and uh, it, re it, it reads, and it read, um, Sennacherib, king of the world, king of Assyria, had the inner and outer walls of Nineveh built anew and raised as high as mountains. And it's, it's actually um, uh, a very interesting statement, because I suppose it's a on the original, of course, it's a very Ozymandias-type statement that um, I, myself, a great ruler, built something which would um, never be destroyed. But also, not only was it destroyed, but also in building what is no longer, I suppose, the image of some ancient dictator, but a part of world heritage, and rebuilding it and saying, we've built this again anew. It's not only the outer wall of Nineveh been built anew, but this object's been built as new and raised as high as mountains. Um, it's a statement that, I suppose... Uh, memory and world heritage and history cannot be suppressed and cannot be destroyed by iconoclasm. Um, even in the context of, um, uh, I suppose, that the, the, the difficult position that Iraq now is. And there's something therefore heroic which comes to this quite meagre object of, of tin cans produced by, um, uh, which pack, package Iraqi foodstuffs. In some way, it's, it's, it's taking what is the commodity and it's it's making it, well, I suppose I'm going to use the word heroic again. So, again, to, to answer your question, is your answer is yes, of course, statues are different to commodities. Um, this is something which um, art historians fr frequently come across. Uh, what's, what's more interesting is when artists think about that 
um, in an interesting way and play with that. And I think the statue um, by Michael Rakovich is, um, uh, is a really interesting way of thinking about, thinking about iconoclasm within that duality of the artist uh, artwork versus the commodity. Probably the most famous example of a statue uh, being defaced is the equestrian statue of the Duke of Wellington in Glasgow. <laughs> and if, yeah. if people aren't familiar with this practice, uh, for, for decades, uh, probably since the 1980s, the locals have been going to great efforts to put a, an orange traffic cone on top of the statue, on top of Duke Wellington's head. Uh, and then the police come and take it down and then someone puts it up and so more or less permanently there's a traffic cone on top of the head of uh, Duke of Wellington and this is a great source of pride for the locals but interestingly right now the orange cone has been replaced with a black cone uh, in tribute to Black Lives Matters and also somebody's put a face mask over the Duke of Wellington and this I think is a nice example of, of the collision of these three phenomena of the history uh, of, of the statues themselves, the coronavirus and Black Lives Matter. Is it worth posing the question, Andy, as to why these three issues have collided uh, in the way that they have in our current moment? One thing I can say about um, iconoclasm just briefly before is um, we mentioned how iconoclasm is not necessarily a useful category because it, I think it produces this ahistorical view of what's going on um, it opens the door to comparing Black Lives Matter to Protestant iconoclasm in the 16th century or Byzantine iconoclasm in the, the 8th century, 9th century. But one thing that iconoclasts often do, nevertheless, is that it's not a, often it's not enough to, des to destroy an image, but to in some way leave the destroyed image there to be looked at, um, to show that the, the image which has been profaned is will now be profaned in a public space. With coronavirus, of course, the... Um, the lockdown is currently being lifted, and I'm 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 going to um, go to Europe to try I don't know just get out of Britain for a short while because I just can't stand it here anymore. And and one of the places I'm I'm going to go is to Utrecht. Utrecht Cathedral is is an interesting place. I mean, some of it was knocked down during a, a storm in the 16th century, uh, but it has an image, and I I can't fully remember um, the details of this, but it, it's a, my my memory is hazy. But it has an image I think from the 15th century and it's a, um, a statue and I think it's of the I think it's a nativity, a nativity. Uh, this image was um, destroyed by Protestants in that the uh, the faces of the individual actors the heads and faces were chopped off but nevertheless the statue was left there in place and it's still there now so it, it now simply is there just to say Catholic culture images are bad and in the same way, the people of Glasgow, they, they don't want to destroy their image of Wellington. They just want, they want to keep it and disrespect it. And that's their statement. What, what we have with coronavirus, I think, is um, I think the relationships between coronavirus and, and, and what's happened with in the United States, I don't think one has caused the other. And of course, the causality of what's been happening in the United States has gone back um, deep into the early modern period, into the history of slavery. And it's been sparked by contemporary police brutality. Uh, what coronavirus might have done is that um, I mean, part of the call of, from America to defund the police is that um, uh, black communities see that um, the police are very, very eager to police and criminalise uh, people, often for minor offences, and to criminalise people who get into debt as well. When you have, I suppose, that intensive policing on the one hand next to a uh, federal and local governments which do not seem to take coronavirus seriously and, and, and I crudely put help with um, a public help communities with the public health disaster, is that that intensifies the resentment potentially towards um, the injustices of uh, American policing uh, by highlighting, I suppose, the investment the state puts into it. So it's coronavirus is possibly an exacerbating factor, uh, but I, I don't think it's um, causal at all. And I think that's maybe a a dangerous route to go down, you know, thinking that people are caught up, locked up at home and have just gone mad. I don't think that's at all the case. You don't agree with some of the op-ed pieces that you, you, you mentioned before in Spike magazine, that there's a general hysteria brewing? Yes, no, I, I, I complete that. I, I've, I read an article in Spike magazine, a, a right-wing outlet that has been funded um, in the past, I don't know, in the present, by the Koch brothers, um, saying that 
coronavirus has kept people indoors. It's sent people a little bit loopy, and this is what's caused people to come out on the streets, um, or at least been a factor in it. No, I think that's just a way to dismiss uh, people's legitimate concerns. But I, I can complain about Starmer if you want. I'm, I'm quite angry about it. <laughs> I... we, we should we should add Keir Starmer as the new leader of the Labour Party, having recently acquired the position from Jeremy Corbyn. When we've um, when we were discussing, I suppose this this wide ranging discussion, we were discussing not just different views that people have about, say, history, but different rationalities which people have to to. Def- to, do, to explain why they want to keep statues or why they want to get rid of them. And, and um, a lot of this, say, comes down to politics and history, but, but what Starmer represents is a, a legal position. He represents someone who prioritizes the law. Saying So he would say that it's disgraceful, for instance, that Colston, that statue of Colston has been up for so long, but it was also bad to, to, to tear it down um, for, a, for a, a group of people within Bristol to decide that they were going to move the statue themselves. So in some way he prioritises what he sees as the law and legitimate expression against public protest. Um, and there's many, I, I don't know, I, I, I don't know where you want me to start with how this is quite frustrating. I suppose partly it's because um, he himself took the knee in a photo op claiming to support Black Lives Matter himself. And then, of course, when it actually comes to some actual expression of, of getting something done, um, he's against it. But it's also the, the legalistic logic that something is bad just because it's illegal. If there's very, we've been talking about Irish examples, Alan, and there was the case in, in 1966, of course, when Nelson's pillar was, was blown up to the great outrage of the um, Irish government, but also amusement to, the people of, to many people within Dublin and in um, celebration of the 1916 uprising. And in the year 2000, uh, someone on a radio show admitted publicly to having committed this this act, but of course, because no, of course, no one was complaining. This this person wasn't investigated, so it was all just kind of dropped. And there's an assumption that just because people take down a a statue, that some form of criminal damage, some form of illegality has um, happened. And this is not, you know, necessarily the case. If I break into my um, sister's home and uh, the neighbours complain, I suppose, and call the police and say someone's broken into their home. The police come round and my sister's there and says, oh, don't worry, it was just my brother. I'll sort him out. The police will leave it alone, of course, because there's been no complaint from the person who owns the house. Now, my sister might give me a bollocking privately, but the point is there'll be no investigation. So the question here is then, did the Bristol Council, did the Bristol Council complain? And they're quite shy about this because according to... Um, the Bristol Post, I was reading about this, some in the Bristol Council claim not to have made a complaint, and yet a criminal investigation is underway with the police saying the council did complain. And then you've also got the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, also demanding some sort of investigation herself and having a firm talk with Bristol Police. So there's a big question here about who the victim is and who's the complainant, and, and it'd be quite interesting to follow this, this legal, um, legal case. Anyway... What you therefore have in Starmer, I, uh, which I find and I think is frustrating, is not simply that he supported Black Lives Matter on the one hand, um, but that he was an unnecessary complainant, um, in my view, um, thinking that just because something which occurs could be complained about, could be said to be criminal damage, doesn't necessarily mean you need to get the police involved. People can just try and deal with these issues um, uh, as a community. And recovering this statue and putting it within a uh, museum or in storage for a short period of time and engaging in some sort of dialogue with the people of Bristol would have, in my view, been the way forward uh, with this rather than a more heavy-handed investigation. On that note of um, ambivalence about statues being uh, destroyed, um, I can tell you a story about a statue that existed in uh, the Phoenix Park in Dublin, which was a statue of uh, Goff, uh, Marshall Goff, one of the uh, leading British Army figures. Um, and after independence, that statue was the cause of much resentment. So I think in, in 1944, somebody came at it with a hacksaw and uh, cut off his head. And it was discovered several days later in the mud of the River Liffey. So it was reclaimed and attached back onto the statue. Then there was another attack where uh, someone put some uh, dynamite and blew off a hind leg. And that was reattached with tinder. Um, 
And then eventually, finally, the IRA um, seriously went at it with a bomb and, and blew it up. And uh, that was the end of the uh, statue of Goff. But they didn't properly blow up the statue, so it had to be finished off by the Irish Army, which was the same as what happened with the statue you mentioned in, in the middle of O'Connell Street. Uh, but um, there was a poem written about it by a man called Vincent Caprani, uh, who was a great doggerel writer uh, of, of, of capturing Dublin life. And I'm proud to say when I was an undergraduate at the Dublin Institute of Technology, we honoured him uh, in an event. But anyway, I'm going to now recite for you uh, a poem that he wrote about the blowing up of the statue of Gough. So here we go. There are strange things done from 12 to 1 in the hollow of Phoenix Park. There's maidens mobbed and gentlemen robbed in the bushes after dark. But the strangest of all within human recall concerns the statue of Gough. Twas a per terrible fact and a most wicked act, for as bollocks they tried to blow off. Underneath the horse's big brick, a dynamite, a dynamite stick, some gallant hero did place. And for the cause of our land, with a match in his hand, the evil foe he did bravely face. Then without a trace of fear, but while standing well clear, he expected to blow up the pair. But he nearly went crackers, all he got was the knackers, and he turned the poor stallion into a mare. For his tactics were all wrong, the horse's prick was too long, the horse itself was no more than a foal. It would have answered him better, this dynamite setter, to shove the bomb up his own hole. For this is the way the heroes of today are challenging England's might, with a stab in the back and a midnight attack on a horse that can't even shout. Thank you, Alan. That was fabulous. So. I'm thinking of Barth when he was talking about photography, but if we smuggle the idea here, uh, it really sounds like every statue is indeed a catastrophe. <laughs> every statue is every statue is a catastrophe. I think that is a uh, a good line to end on, actually. So, yes, thank you, Andy, and I hope the tennis season resumes for you soon. Well, thank you, uh, Alan. I've still, despite thirteen years of those jokes, I've not had a a good comeback to it yet. So, um, thank you for having me on. Thank you very much, Andy. I've learned a lot about all of these topics. <laughs>